This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon and welcome to Enterprise Biz Bites. I'm Roshan Kennison flying solo in the studio this afternoon. It's Monday, June 19th, just about 12.06 p.m. And today we're going to be talking about some big news that happened last week in the zone of generative AI and the crazy money that's being thrown at the industry. OpenAI's ChatGPT may have the current mind share when it comes to AI, but that could soon be challenged given how much money is being plowed into this business to compete against OpenAI in the building, training, and application of large language models, more commonly known as LLMs, and generative AI in general. According to PitchBook, in a report released in March, VCs have steadily increased their positions in generative AI from just around $400 million in 2018 to 10 times the amount in 2021, about $4.8 billion, around $4.5 billion in 2022. Just in May, if I take a look at the numbers, Light Matter raised $150 million in a Series C round. Modular app building platform BuildIt.ai raised $250 million in a Series D round. And Anthropic, the prominent generative AI startup co-founded by OpenAI veterans raised around just under half a billion dollars in Series C. However, all of that, in my opinion, is blown out of the water by the last week's announcement that four-week-old or five-week-old now, a French technology and AI company Mistral AI raised 113 million US dollars in a seed round, like I said, just a month after being set up. Sources close to the company that spoke to American tech portal TechCrunch confirmed that the value of Mistral was around $260 million at that point, and it plans to use the funding to assemble what Mistral CEO has described as a world-class team creating the best open-source models. Now, Mistral is co-founded by alums from Google's DeepMind and Meta, and will be focusing on open-source solutions and targeting enterprises to create what their CEO believes is currently the biggest challenge in the field, uh, quote-unquote here, to make AI useful. Uh, It reportedly plans to release its first models for text-based generative AI in 2024, and the fundraising here was led by international venture cap fund Lightspeed Venture Partners, with former Google CEO Eric Schmidt also being a shareholder in the company. Just to get into the background of who Lightspeed is, to give us a bit of a context here, according to Crunchbase data, Lightspeed Venture Partners has made just over 1,200 investments, leading 400 of those, and has had just over 200 exits over the years, with their most notable ones being Snap, Jiffy, and Zscaler, or just Scaler. Uh, Lightspeed uh, was the first outside investor in Snap, investing just under $500,000 in it in 2012, and investing in future rounds for a total of $8.1 million in total as of 2017. When Snap did go public, the stake was reportedly worth $2 billion. So on paper, that was a return at the time of 250 times. So that's their credentials there. So overall, when we look at the situation, I think the question that we want to ask here is, is Mistral AI's massive $113 million raise genius delusional or stupid let us know what you think on whatsapp on our ubomall number at 018-789-8899 but for now though join me to have this conversation with me today is kevin brocklin founder and managing partner of indelible ventures a vc fund that targets seed stage tech enabled b2b startups in the southeast asian region kevin how are you doing it's been a while 
It has been a while. Thank you for having me. And this is uh, this is definitely an interesting topic to discuss, and certainly a seed round that I'd be proud and priced out of, but nonetheless interesting. <laughs> yes, definitely a big round here. Quite eye-watering numbers. Um, but you know, before we get into the the round itself, uh, Kevin. Um, I want to get a bit of, I want to maybe set the, the lay of the land a little bit, right? Because, you know, we've yeah. talked a lot about, in general, how rising interest rates have drastically impacted the funding landscape and environment in startup world. Uh, could you give us a sense of why this was such a concern, the rising interest rate environment, and how this, generally speaking, how this impacts investment decisions? I mean, there's a handful of items that you can attach to that. One is... There's a valuation drag that ends up getting attached to when interest rates drive up because, you know, there's a trickle down effect that comes from the public markets and public markets are discounting future cash flows. The discount rate involves interest rates. So there's a there's a drag that happens and it trickles down uh, across the private markets earlier and earlier stage. The other aspect is when you're looking at uh, new commitments for new vehicles, new funds, etc., Money's more expensive now. And so it's not flowing in as cheap and easy as it did when there were zero interest rate policies. So as it becomes harder for funds to launch new vehicles, and there's a number of stories out there of uh, very well-known, reputable growth funds that have had to scale back the size rather substantially. And so you're starting to see the, resi- the, the, the impact of that happen. And for those that may not necessarily be currently raising or closing, they're starting to kind of slow down a little bit of their deployment to make sure that they're that they still have some dry powder while they go to market and, and start prepping for their next vehicles. So there is a, a combination of factors that's going on because of interest rates. So taking everything you just talked about there and the general perception in the market, um, does the size of this deal surprise you given the higher rate, more cautious environment? Uh, yes and no. I, I, would, I would say more so on the no side because like one aspect that we need to start off with just to kind of set the baseline is do you believe it's hype or do you believe that there's long-term impact? And so I am actually in the camp that believes that there's long-term impact because it's pretty clear the value proposition. Like there's clear evidence of the capability of AI in order to increase efficiency, productivity, and things that have directly applicable sort of like bottom line impacts for businesses. Because of that, I think that there is clearly some level of hype that may play in but when the dust settles, it'll still be around and it'll still grow as a segment. On the back of five-week-old French technology and AI company Mistral announcing that uh, last week that it raised a whopping $113 million, reportedly valuing the company at $260 million. Today on BizBytes, I've been speaking with Kevin Brocklin of Indelible Ventures about whether this kind of valuation is justified, what VCs consider when they make huge bets like this, and common misconceptions that people may have about the VC business. Up next, we're going to get into how much formal factors play into a decision like this, especially Especially when GPs are under pressure to deploy cash and generate returns. I'm Roshan Kanison. Keep it here to BFM 89.9, the business station. Brave Finance Managers, BFM 89.9. 
Hey folks, welcome back to Enterprise Biz Bytes. I'm Roshan Kunison, and if you've just joined us on the back of five-week-old French tech and AI company Mistral AI raising $113 million last week, reportedly valuing the business at $260 million. Today on Biz Bytes, I've been speaking with Kevin Brocklin of Indelible Ventures about whether this kind of valuation is justified, what VCs consider when they make huge bets like this, and some of the misconceptions that people may have about the VC business. Just last week, BlackRock's uh, Larry Fink was talking about how um, AI productivity is going to help with inflation. Um, in a recent podcast that Jason Calacanis runs, uh, I think one of his uh, one of his angel events recently, someone was giving the example of how they took the Facebook, uh, they took a company's Q10 or K10 uh, filing, dropped it into their generative AI, and it gave them insights into their report. A 50-page report was distilled down as a prompt. So a lot that's going on here. Um, that said, Kevin, uh, Mistral is not just pre-revenue. It's also pre-product and only four or five weeks old now uh, and reportedly now worth around $260 million. Before we talk about whether the valuation is justified or not, maybe give us a sense of how these kind of decisions are made. What are VCs looking for when they do deals like this? Yeah, so, you know, when when you look at it, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of factors and you start, you start by having an assumption on what's going to happen with the market. So when, from my viewpoint, and I think this is, a, this is a not exclusive to me sort of viewpoint, there's going to be a similar impact when you start talking about certain layers of the value stack associated with AI. And so one layer of it, you can talk about what's happened with NVIDIA's stock, where they've kind of skyrocketed on, on the use of it when there's a gold rush sell shovels uh, sort, of, sort of aspect. And that's kind of where their value uh, capture has been. Then you have the hyperscalers like an AWS, uh, Azure, uh, Google Cloud, uh, and a couple of other folks. That's a hard layer to compete on because it's very capital intensive. And so it's kind of concentrated into a handful of folks. When you get into the LLMs, it's pretty well known that it's also rather capital intensive because there's a lot of compute power and there's a lot of brain power required in order to develop all of this. And similarly, because a lot of those characteristics, because the brain power is also a limited resource, there will likely also end up being a concentrated set of winners that capture the majority of the value out of that. And so if you start with that kind of layer of assumption on it, then you look at it of trying to say, how can I find the AI brain power equivalent of the elite athletes and equip them with enough capital to where they can then create the elite company that is one of those few that survive uh, this, this kind of uh, period as, as, they, as things settle. And so from, if, if you take that viewpoint, you would have the hypothesis that you need to invest heavily into it. Now, one of the things that I, that I noted when I was looking through some of the details of this deal is that from a percent ownership standpoint, it was definitely not uh, where the kind of the rule of thumb seed deal falls into because generally a seed deal is like 10 to 20%. Mm -hmm. 
this was substantially higher, somewhere around 40%. Uh, so it definitely captured a larger ownership stake. So there's, there's more voices at the table because of that. But I think that definitely plays a large role into why was it so big? Well, and it's extremely capital intensive uh, industry. So if we're going to be able to compete against players that have raised close to a billion, if not more than a billion, then we need to have uh, the bankroll in order to be able to do it. So if you, ca- if, you, if you tackle that side of it, then you need to say, do we have the right team? Do we have the brain power? And in all honesty, the, the guys that are, that are leading this are elites. Can they bring a team of fellow elites? I have to imagine somewhere in those conversations, all of this sort of logic and scenario planning played very prominently in in the decision process. When you make a big bet like this, you're betting on the people there. And this is what the lead investor from Lightspeed said as well. Uh, He says that he thinks that there are only 70 to 100 people in the world right now with the expertise uh, for language models and optimizing them. So in the context of AI startups then, uh, how important is the team's expertise and background in determining a company's valuation, uh, especially in a situation as early as this? No matter what type of startup it is, when you're in the early stage, you're making a bet on the people Mm. because it's the people that build the businesses. The product's going to evolve over time and it needs to evolve over time. It needs to build, it needs to grow. And the only way that that's going to end up happening is if you have incredible people behind it. And when you start talking about something that's even more sophisticated, like these AI models, the LLMs, This is incredibly sophisticated. And when you talk about the skill sets, I think that quote of 70 to, you know, that's that's probably probably fairly accurate. You're talking about an elite set of individuals that are capable of doing this. And the people that are behind this individual enterprise, you know, they have the background of working for some of the companies that have been investing heavily, heavily, heavily into exactly this. So you have to kind of ask yourself, since you're not kind of a fly on the wall of these rooms where these discussions were happening, what would prompt a person to leave a job that I have to imagine was extremely high paying and go out on their own and take the risk of doing a startup on them on the on themselves. There's got there's got to be something there, and if there's something there well enough in order to get a couple of elites into it, from you know the AI knowledge set basis, then they should be able to lure in a pretty good team. Kevin, I'm wondering if you can share with us some examples to you know uh, in, where the team's credentials significantly influence investment decisions, right? Because um, while anecdotally we may know this to be true, sometimes having actual examples from the past can really help you know knock this out of the park. So I guess I can give you a notorious example because it was heavily <laughs> heavily noted into the in the news, right? We all know like. Uh, the WeWork story and maybe some people have watched the Re- We Crashed uh, series and all of that. But guess what? The guy, the guy went on to raise massive amounts of money for another, another, uh, another startup. And it's largely based upon the fact that he had already built something that was at huge scale despite you know, all the stuff that was going on. 
And so there is a, there is an aspect um, where the talents of the individuals, you know, on whether whether it's whether it's the knowledge set, the capabilities on something like AI, because that's very specialized and technical. Or if you're talking about many other startups, serial founders generally have an easier time if they've proven success in a past incarnation of when they go out again. It's never easy, but it's a little, there's a little bit of an advantage uh, for them. Um, so team definitely plays, plays an advantage. Oftentimes, you know, you're looking for outliers. So somebody that has demonstrated successes in past lives, it's a demonstration of somebody that has a pattern of overachieving. And if you have multiple instances of that, then it's a lot easier to, for somebody end, to end up making that bet that you'll do it again. So now, Kevin, there's a mad rush for AI right now. I think that's pretty much clear. We're seeing a lot of money being thrown into the business now, and there's a lot of potential ahead. The the partner at Lightspeed that led this round told TechCrunch that like cloud computing, they think that ultimately there are only going to be five to six players that get the lion's share in the AI, the generative AI or the AI business in the longer term. Um, so when you hear something like that, how much does the formal factor play into a decision like this, especially uh, when GPs are under pressure to deploy cash and generate returns? Yeah, so I mean, this, this comes back to what your, what your market viewpoint is. So if your market viewpoint is, is that this is going to be big, and if your market viewpoint is that there's going to be this sort of um, handful of winners, that's a large amount of potential profit that's going to come around a, a relative segment of the pool. And so there is an aspect of when there's a hot deal that you believe is going to be one of those winners and you have that level of conviction, there may likely be a bit of FOMO of not wanting to miss out on one of those future champions. And I, I, I can understand that because I, am, I do sit in the camp where I think that, there, that this is um, a seismic shift that is quite similar to what cloud's impact was on the industry. Uh, I've even heard people do the comparison of the impact on productivity across the economy will be similar to when offices started being equipped with desktops and laptops um, because there's huge gains from it. So if you have this level of optimism or ambitious outlook, it's, it can become understandable because you're talking about what's the future outcome and then it's kind of a, then it's kind of a probabilistic calculation of what my what my potential could be. On the back of five-week-old French tech and AI company Mistral AI announcing last week that it raised a whopping $113 million, reportedly valuing the company at $260 million. Today on BizBytes, I've been speaking with Kevin Brocklin of Indelible Ventures about whether this kind of valuation is justified, what VCs consider when they make huge bets like this, and common misconceptions people may have about the VC business, which we're going to get into in just a few minutes. I'm Roshan Kynason. Keep you here to BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Blues, folk, metal. BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Enterprise Biz Bites. I'm Roshan Kanesan, and if you've just joined us on the back of month old French tech and AI company Mistral announcing that it was it raised a uh, hundred and thirteen million US dollars today on Biz Bites, I've been speaking with Kevin Brocklin of Indelible Ventures about what goes into a decision like this to justify the kind of valuation, as well as what VCs think about when they make huge bets like this, and some of the possible misconceptions that people may have about the VC business. Earlier in the session, I kind of told us a little bit about Lightspeed's experience and they have been in the business for a long time. Uh, but this can still feel like a huge leap, right? Despite the, you know, we've talked about the potential gains and productivity gains and the yeah. that could be only five or six lion share winners from this. Um, you know, the company, but the thing is the company has no product, no revenue, no customers. Uh, and I know VCs aren't strangers to backing companies like this, but with the number of zeros here in the seed stage, it really does feel a bit mind boggling. Is it just me or is this bordering on crazy or is there the, a larger context that maybe this should be compared to? Yeah, so I mean, I have to imagine because the the percent that is going in this round is is pretty large. And so I have to imagine that there's levels of control uh, that are going to be in place. And I'm hoping this is this is not similar to, to past exuberances where large amounts of money were thrown at companies. But in this one, because of who it is and because of some of the way that it seems like it was it was done and who's in, who's involved in all of that, my guess is that there's probably layers of control in regards to the deployment of capital and that it's just not kind of um, here I trust you now go and run. I never see, I won't I won't see you again until the annual report. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think there'd be anybody that read that number and, and didn't have their eyes widen and say, really? You know, pre-product, pre-revenue. But then when you when you get into it and you're like, all right, some of the best resumes among the founders in regards to the knowledge set on this space, there must be something already there, even though there's not a product ready to be sold. There's got to be something there. I don't know what it is. I don't think it's been well reported on what it could be. Maybe it's it's probably, it's got to be something, you know. So even though it's not product ready to be sold, there's got to be something that when they went and kicked the tires, they were impressed by whatever it is. And, you know, the, a good point that you make here is that you know, they're not taking a typical 10, 20% of the company that you would see in a mm -hmm. seed round. They've taken, yeah. they're, they're taking roughly around 40% based on the oh, reports. Yeah. Um, that's a huge amount. So let's say you divided it by two. That's a $50 million round for 20% of the company, which would be a typical C round. So not as eye-watering still, but it, it is unusual for someone to come in and take 40% of a company mm. so early. Um, now, given the high valuation uh, and this large stake that they've taken here, uh, despite the pre-product and pre-revenue status, this would put a lot of pressure, I'm guessing, on the company to deliver results, uh, especially because, you know, when you put that much money to work, the VC is not going to want to sit around and, like you mentioned earlier, right, like, oh, well, I'll see you at the next annual report. Yeah. Um, so how, in general, how do you see, how do you think startups can manage these kind of expectations while still focusing on the product development and not getting bogged down by the pressure? I mean, when capital comes in, it's meant to be fuel for the engine, and so this is, you, when, you're, when you go out and raise, you should be ready to move fast. And that's exactly what the capital is intended to enable is speed of execution. 
And so the pressure is certainly going to be turned on, but it's important for any startup founder out there to be aware of that and be ready with a plan to execute on it. Conditions change over the course of execution. So what you think is going to happen in six months, nine months, 12 months may not. But it's important in order to have that sort of viewpoint of I'm ready to start moving fast. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to iterate and get product market fit. I'm going to start scaling in and I'm going to execute. And so the pressure is on for those guys. Now, Kevin, whether fair or unfair, um, you know, when people hear about numbers like this, straight away they're going to be judgments, they're going to be reactions, they're going to be like, oh, people, this is a, this is such a stupid move, this is a dumb move, you know, people are throwing money, good money after bad. Um, in your view, what are some of the common misconceptions that people generally have uh, about the VC business when rounds like this happen? Uh, I mean, generally it has a tendency of revolving around hype and things like that. And sometimes that's right. Sometimes it's hard to justify. Um, I would say that one of the surprising factors that, that, that happened with this, uh, which I don't actually disagree with, is Europe is pretty tough on regulation. Mm. And so I know that there, there ought to be a player coming uh, from there. But if you look at who's already banned OpenAI, there's a couple of European countries yeah. have already. And the EU is, from my understanding, having conversations as well because of data privacy, security, etc. So having a company coming out of Europe is quite interesting as well. And so it does make me wonder, is it being tailor-made for some of that? So is it going to capture that market? Is it just being grown there because of the talent and going to capture other markets? So the, the, the question is jumping to conclusions without actually having all of the facts. Uh, I think oftentimes it plays a role. You never know what's, what's behind it because, again, this is so early that we don't know what's already there. And that's an interesting point that you've made that, that I didn't think about as well. Because yes, you're right. The EU is looking at regulation as they always do for everything. Um, but if Mistral caters to that and becomes a European champion, like OpenAI is expected to be in the US, this could be very interesting if they can able to capture that market um, and cater to those regulatory concerns, be a European champion, that sort of thing. So that's something I guess something to keep in mind going forward. Uh, but Kevin, let's wrap up on this last question here. Um, it's not all rainbows and sunshine for the generative AI business. Four weeks ago, Neva, which for a while looked like a Google search disruptor, announced that it was walking away from the consumer search business to focus on enterprise offerings and was then acquired by Snowflake, which is a quite a huge cloud computing-based data cloud company. So not everyone is going to be able to realize their estimated promise. Um, so let's take a look at, maybe give us a sense of the red flags that VCs generally generally watch out for to help ensure that they're taking these hopefully calculated bets on the right companies. Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a couple of things here. Because all of these models, generative AI models, they're built off of data sets. And so you can look at it as, to simplify things, you can look at it as there's two types of data sets. There's non-proprietary, which anyone can get access to. Generally, that's the easiest one in order to build off of because anyone can get access to. 
And then there's proprietary data sets. And so when you think of proprietary data sets, think of a data advantage that a Google may have because it knows what you're searching for. It knows what you're typing. It knows... Uh, it owns YouTube. So YouTube is this massive collection of audio and text and all, all of these images and all of this. Now, from my understanding, apparently OpenAI, there was a, there was a story about OpenAI was actually scraping it and, and yeah. taking some of it. I don't, I don't know whether or not any of that is actually true, but that there's a lot of value in that. And so the non-proprietary essentially can become commoditized right? Because if anyone can access to it, it's a matter of once the models are developed, then okay, the mo then it's a differentiation of who has the more sophisticated, but then the, it's not necessarily always going to be a 10x better sort of uh, solution. And so a big layer plays into what's that differentiation between companies and is there potential in order to have a competitive moat. And so a big player like OpenAI who is tons of resources into it, etc. link up with Microsoft, which adds an entirely other layer of potential benefits. There's a lot of proprietary components that, that end up getting into that. When you think of uh, Google, lots of proprietary. When you think of Meta, there's a lot of proprietary. And so I think a big component kind of comes down to what is that differentiator? Now, that's not to say that small startups can't still come up and do something. It's just a matter of, are you competing at the capital intensive layer or are you going to be competing on something that's more tailored? And so there's a few, few layers. And I think it's important for founders as well as investors to understand the dynamics of at which layer are you competing? And what are the true competitive dynamics? Capital intensiveness, proprietary versus non-proprietary. Is it tailor-made? What's How difficult is it to replicate? Et cetera, et cetera. Kevin, I wish we had more time to talk about this and nerd out, but unfortunately, <laughs> uh, we don't. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Always an interesting topic to nerd out on. Always a pleasure having you on, Kevin. Uh, that was Kevin Brocklin, founder and managing partner of Indelible Ventures, a VC that targets seed stage in tech-enabled B2B startups in the region. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can catch the podcast on our website at bfm.my or download the BFM app. You can also find our shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast players. Just search for Enterprise BizBytes. Now, looking ahead, we've got the Breakfast Girl replay after the 1pm news bulletin. It's been more than six months since the formation of this unity government. So against the backdrop of rising geopolitical tensions, we take stock of its foreign policy direction and priorities with Prashant Parameswaran, senior columnist at The Diplomat and a fellow at the Wilson Center's Asia Program. Catch that after the 1pm news bulletin. I'm Roshan Kinnison. This has been Enterprise Biz Bites. Keep it here to BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app. 